Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 as I get reacquainted with where all of the squeaky spots are on the stage and the spots to avoid. Matthew chapter 22. And there is a reason I'm wearing this shirt tonight. Uh, For the next three weeks, we want to talk about three words. And normally I have the people wearing a shirt identical to mine stand up and model it. But I said, you know what? I've always been kind of a model myself. (laughs) Why not show it off myself? Um, No, this week and the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about these three words, love, equip, send. And I realize it's been way too long since we've gone over it and why these three words are are where they are. Um, By the way, this happens... Uh, almost every time. Uh, If you remember last month, we were saying, okay, order if you want sweatshirts or hats or whatever, make sure you get your orders in. And then some people did. And then everybody got their stuff and has been wearing it, especially if you're at Christmas Eve. And people are like, you know, I I meant to order one. And uh, is it too late? Good news is we've reopened the store for a couple weeks. So uh, if you're you're wearing one of the Love Equip Send shirts or sweatshirts, could you just stand up really quick where you are so people then uh, people will be like, oh, how does the sweatshirt feel, and all that stuff. Um, So, yes, please, uh, the link is back up. We can get that to you. But why did we come up with these three words, love, equip, send? And I love talking about it because it, um, just a brief history. I am from the Northeast, specifically New York, and even more specifically, the middle of nowhere. Uh, in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. And you, some of you have heard the story of me telling people, like, oh, I'm from the mountains of New York when I lived in Indiana. And they're like, New York doesn't have mountains. And I was like, no, really, it does. I, I'm from there. And this elderly lady said, I wasn't born yesterday. It's like, I can't argue with that. So I guess we're done. Um, but church planting in the Northeast, especially for me, it was just not a thing. I didn't know what it was. Uh, and it wasn't until my wife and I, we were in Virginia, and a friend of ours was planning a church, and we uh, decided to, we wanted to help plant this church. And, I mean, I just fell in love with church planting. Uh, as a pastor's kid, I never wanted to be a pastor, but I always loved serving in churches. And, uh, but then when I was introduced to church planting, I mean, I was just in love right away. And so about, I think it was 2013, Tab and I started praying about what does church planning look like. And for two years, we would have these discussions all the time, every road trip. It was about what if we did this or how would this look and all of those discussions. And then uh, 2014, we didn't know where to plant. Uh, As you know, I've now moved, I believe, 58 times in my life. And my wife also has lived in North Carolina, New York, Hungary. Her family was in the Czech Republic. So we just didn't have a attractive geographical location that weighed on us emotionally. And so we prayed about different cities. We'd visit different cities. I was scared to death that God was going to send me to Boston. I mean, just, I didn't know what I would do. Like, would I openly and willingly not obey God? Um, It's like, God called us to Boston, but guess we're not following God anymore. Like, that's, and I know that sounds awful, and it is but not as bad as Boston. Um, Just kidding. Um, And so I actually ended up asking 
just four different men who've been mentors to me and different people. Hey, can you go and pray and ask God where we should go plant a church? Because at that point, I think it had been a year and a half, and we had no idea. And it was just as only God can. In one week, all four guys, none of them who knew each other, um, called me and said, have you thought about Charleston, South Carolina? Now, I consider myself a mountain man. I don't care about the beach. Charleston was not attractive to me whatsoever. And so he was telling me, well, you know, Charleston's really growing and they need churches. I'm like, I don't think a New Yorker is going to fit in well in the deep south. I don't think that's a thing. And then the next guy called me. He goes, hey, Rob, I was talking to a church planner friend of mine who's in the southeast, and he said Charleston is really in need of churches. I was like, well, that's weird. And then that same week, the third and fourth guy, I was like, you know, as I talk to people, they say Charleston really needs church planners. They need more churches in Charleston. And then Sunday night, um, a single mom of three teenagers in our church stopped by our house to drop something off. And she goes, yeah, she goes, I wasn't at church because I actually spent the weekend in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, I went to this church plant that's only a year old, and, um, and I couldn't believe it. And she was telling me about Charleston. And I didn't know I'd ever, I'd been here one time before, but didn't remember it. Um, so we came down on a trip believing, okay, this probably is on accident. And then about a year, year and a half later, we were moving here. Um, and uh, it's just been unbelievable to see all, as I was saying, God did. But I think if there's one aspect I miss, because church planning is not easy. If there's one aspect I miss, it's the planning and thinking through stuff um, and trying to figure stuff out. And so when I see Love Equip send to me, it's very, very heartfelt. I don't think I came up with that, by the way. Almost every good idea that we've had as a church did not come from me. And as I would talk to other pastors, especially as we got started, like, hey, Rob, how did you set this up? I'm like, oh, um, so I know a guy. Or, oh, I'm not in charge of that. You need to talk to Allie. Or, oh, no, Sarah does all that. Like, and uh, the, finally, a couple people said, so what exactly do you do? I was like, I don't know. I, I get up on stage and I preach, except when Scott Ackley's parents are here. That's the only time, which now it's ruined. You're here and I'm preaching. So all is lost. Um, but when we are coming up with our mission statement, and I mean, talking to businessmen and pastors and listening to podcasts and all the stuff that you do as somebody who just can't wait to church, plan a church and you want to do it right, but just being continued to draw back to Scripture and being told, Rob, the mission statement's too broad or it's not specific enough or, you know, plan this, but having worked for several missions agencies, having worked for so many different churches, having worked, I just don't want something specific because I don't want to not allow God to have control. And so when we came up with the mission statement for Hope Church, we wanted to match up with exactly what God tells us to do as a church. And so our mission statement is Hope Church exists to glorify God, build his kingdom, and fulfill the Great Commission. And those words are chosen very carefully, especially the beginning part. Hope Church exists. Number one, we exist to glorify God in everything that we do. Every word, every thought, everything we do should be done to glorify God. And as we come together as a church, we should make sure that we're doing it to glorify God. Second, it's not about building a big church. If we wanted to build a big church numerically, Saturday night, not the time to do it. So we knew that going in, that God, we felt God calling us 
to do Saturday night to reach people that just simply couldn't go to church on Sunday morning. But it's more important to build his kingdom. The command is to build his kingdom. And that includes every entity of the local church as part of the universal church. And so as maybe you've heard me say, we view Hope Church as in Somerville and Charleston, there are all these wonderful churches. And we view them as just this beautiful mosaic of ceramic tiles. But we feel that God has called us to be the grout. What are the areas that are, are missed? What are the areas that need to be filled? And we'll just take that for, we'll be responsible for that. We'll take ownership of that. And so that's building his kingdom. It's not about building Hope Church. We're not promised that this entity of the local church will last forever. We're promised that the universal church will last forever and get the, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So we are here to build his kingdom. And then third, we are here to fulfill the Great Commission. And Matthew, at the end of Matthew, we are told, go and make disciples. It's a command as though from a military officer. And we're going to be talking about that more in the next couple of weeks. But here's why those first three words exist. Because as soon as we stop existing to glorify God, as soon as we start to exist to build Hope Church more than the kingdom of God, and the more that we focus on what we want rather than what on God wants, we are no longer a church. We are a social club. We are a social club that gets together and shares stories and, and wants ourselves to feel good about doing something spiritually, but we cease to be the actual church of God. And so that's, to me, why that is so important. So out of that, what do we do? What, now, if that's, our, if that's our mission statement, what is our vision? What must we do? And, and for us, that's every day that we live to love, equip, and send. So equip and send are the next two weeks. You have to come back to hear about those. Tonight, I want to talk specifically about love. What does that word love mean? And I remember a couple years ago, Cam Stewart um, was preaching on love. I warned Cam. By the way, Cam, I didn't realize how much I was going to mention your name tonight, so I'm apologizing in advance. Cam got up to preach, and he started by saying, I love my wife. And I was like, aw. And he goes, and I love my dog. I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> and then he said, and I love Taco Bell. And they're like, well, now we've taken a downturn. That was sweet for a little bit. And then Cam explained that in Greek, there are multiple words to describe love. In English, we get one. And so when we're studying the Bible and, and the Greek, we'll, we'll see, oh, that's what phileo means. That's what agape means. That's what, and we're not getting into that tonight. Because I, I just wanted to point out, I think we've really lost or we've watered down the meaning of love. And for the remainder of the service, when I say we love Taco Bell, please understand, I'm talking about Cam and not myself. <laughs> I do not love Taco Bell. Those words would never escape out of my mouth. Um, and Taco Bell doesn't love me either. <laughs> and so, <laughs> just a disclaimer for the rest of the message. So when we see the word love, I believe that we really have to focus a little bit more on what that means, uh, especially with our English, our limited English language. And when you come to preach a message on love, you have only the entire Bible to choose from. The entire Bible is written to tell us how much God loves us. 
It is, I just, I'm getting chills thinking, singing through that last song, the line, if grace was an ocean, we're all sinking. And so as we carry through, think like, we cannot comprehend the love God has for us. I can study the Bible every day of my life for as long as I live, and I feel like I will barely be able to understand how much God loves me, how much God loves you, and how individualistic and how intimate that love is for you. How intimate and individualistic that love is for me. Uh, Neil McGlowan was preaching one time, and he said, if you were the only person alive, God still would have sent his son to earth to die a horrible death on the cross to pay the price for your sins. That's how much he loves you. And so I want that to be very, very clear is just how much God loves us. And so when I think about, okay, now I have to preach a passage on love. How do you combine the entire Bible? And I think it's actually pretty easy. When we're in Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 34 in just a second, uh, as, as we, just to put this in context, um, if you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Matthew this last two years, we see these two people groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. And just to put this somewhat in context, think Democrats and Republicans. Uh, there's things that they agree on, and they both think they know what's right for the Jewish people. Um, except in this case, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they studied the law of God. They would have more than likely had the entire, what we now know as the Old Testament. Uh, that was just, for them, the Bible at that time. And they would have had it all memorized. They would have had the laws memorized. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were people that said they would study all the laws in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would study all of these different laws and the specifics, and they would come to the conclusion it's just not enough laws. We need more. So they would write more laws or specific details about the laws, and they would discuss it with themselves, and they would say, yes, we need more laws. And they would write more laws based on the laws they had previously written, based on the laws that God had given them, and so on. And this would happen for generations. And now Jesus comes to earth, and I love this, doesn't have a lot to do with my message, but I love the picture of Jesus coming to earth. Jesus who gave the commandments, who gave the law, the writer and the author, the perfecter of our faith, the author of life, as Hebrew calls him. He wrote this. He gave it to Moses, and he comes to earth, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees think, we're going to trap him in this one. And Jesus, you, to me, his love is demonstrated in his response to them. Like, for me, I would have been like, I wrote this. I know this. Like, I know what this is. And they come to him yet again. So the Sadducees come in the preceding passage, and they're talking to Jesus about marriage and the resurrection, which, again, it's just, in looking at it now, it's hilarious because they're trying to trap him in a question about marriage in heaven. And they're like, you know, what if this happens? What if that? And Jesus says, oh, no, like, I'm from there. Like, I'm from heaven. Like, I created heaven. I'm in charge of everything there. So I'm not telling you what I think heaven is like. I'm describing my home for all eternity to you. And they're like, hmm, I don't know if I believe you. But he stumps them in this question about marriage and the resurrection. So that's where we pick it up in verse 34. It writes, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. 
one of them, an expert in the law. So all of these Pharisees are experts in the law. So this is saying, like, the all-star team got together, and then the expert, the all-pro of the all-star team, that's who this person is. So this is a very highly respected man. It doesn't give us his name or who he was, but this is a highly respected man among his peers. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. How do you summarize the greatest commandment? By what Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when we see the word love, hopefully your thought is love God, love others. Love God, love others. We had a pastor at one of the churches we were at. And he had, uh, at the time, three teenage daughters. And one time he said, I just tell them, love God, love others, everything else will fall into place. If you're not sure what to do, love God, love others, everything else will fall into place. Now I'm thinking, when I was a teenager, I would have loved the just do whatever you want. Like, I think that's what it was. Love God, love others, do whatever you want. As long as you're doing those two things, everything else will fall into place. And then you start to think about what does it actually look like to love God, biblically? Because part of the story, part of this love story that is the Bible is God and how much he loves us. And part of it is when we love God properly, this is what happens in our life. When we love God properly, we love others properly. And this is what happens in our life. When we love God properly, we have a better view of how to love ourselves in the way that God wants us to. And everything else falls into place. So it sounds simple, but it's unbelievably deep. And we will be spending the rest of our lives studying what that means to love God and love others. So he says, love the Lord your God. That's how he starts off with, with this. But Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, part of the law. This is something that the um, Pharisees would have known as well. And so he, he goes back and quotes Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your, and then he goes on, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that might sound like three different things to us. And it's both three different things and all universal things, I will explain. So he says, with all of your heart. And with all of your heart, that is where we see, uh, at this time, the heart would have been your emotions. Uh, This means love the Lord your God with all of your emotions. Love him emotionally. Why? Whatever our emotions guide us to do, whatever our emotions tell us to do, that usually becomes the desire of our heart. And we do it. Uh, Why do we do the things we do? Simply, most of the time, it's because we want to. It's what's going to make us look better. It's what we believe is going to make us feel better. And our emotions are very wrapped up in our desire. Um, In Galatians 5, when Paul's writing and he says, hey, this is how you can tell if somebody's walking in the spirit or if they're not walking in the spirit. And he gives these different emotions or actions that follow where your heart is. Uh, So that word heart is very tied up in our decision-making process. Why? Most of the time we are making decisions emotionally. Uh, God gave us emotions. Emotions are not bad. But I believe what Jesus is saying here is, do we love God with all of our emotions? 
when we are going through a, a rough time and we're feeling down, do our emotions, because of what God has done in our past, does, does it point us to God? Does it say, hey, you're going through a rough time, you're going through a hard time, you're going through a depressing time, uh, you're going through a fearful time. Whatever those different emotions are, do we respond emotionally with loving God more? Or do we respond by running the other way? Do we think, well, in the past, this made me feel good. I'm going to go do that. Because right now, I want to love myself and not God with my feelings or with my emotions. So God's saying, love me with all of your emotions. Secondly, he says, with all of your soul. I believe this is the love me spiritually. Another um, deciding factor in how we make decisions is spiritually. Uh, there's times where we're not sure what to do, and we will make a spiritual decision. Well, I know this about God, or I know that God doesn't want me to do this, so I'm going to do this. But a big test of that is, again, what we do is driven spiritually. Uh, I've heard, uh, I remember people saying, you know, hey, when all else fails, pray. I now realize that is the worst possible advice. That means when you've tried everything else, then ask God. Then talk to God. That's a uh, complete reliance on self, not on God. So when should you pray? First, second, third, throughout. Why? Well, if we love God with all of our soul, we should be driven to him in the decision-making process. Not when it gets bad, but just continually drawn to him. Our spiritual lives should be so dependent on God that we couldn't imagine going a day without talking to him. Uh, I, I remember hearing people say growing up, like, uh, Jesus always talked to God, so if Jesus always talked to God, shouldn't we? When Jesus was on earth, he was always going and praying, so shouldn't we? But then as I studied scripture more, I, thought, I think what I came to is, no, he was so close to God, he couldn't not go without talking to him. When I go long periods of time without praying, it's a demonstration that I am not close to God at those times. Why? When you're close to something and you love something, you want to spend time with it. You can't imagine not being with it. And so can we honestly say that we love God with all of our soul when a priority isn't spending time growing spiritually, when a priority isn't spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time in meditation, um, prioritizing being a disciple in a discipleship relationship. And then third, it says, with all of your mind. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. What is the third way that we make decisions? Intellectually. We think. Now, to be completely honest, and I know I've confessed this to you before, in my heart of hearts, I think I am awesome. I think I have got it all figured out most of the time. Um, I have told a couple pastors, um, I said, I always hear people say, well, I'm my own worst critic. I am not. I think fantastically about me. And God knew that, and he has put so many people in my life who are my worst critics and who will let me know when I'm messing up. Because in my mind, I'm doing everything right most of the time. Why? Because I'm relying on myself intellectually. Reality, and what I kind of mentioned earlier, is 
the, the day before you plant a church and become the pastor of that church, you are the smartest human being in the world. You have it all figured out. You know what every other church is doing wrong. You can point out all of their faults and think, we got it figured out. And you won't make it 10 minutes in before something messes up and you're like, I didn't even think of that. Tonight, <laughs> I was getting ready in here and I'm like sweaty and all of a sudden I look at my watch and I'm like, oh, I am doing pre-service in 20 minutes and I still have to drive home, change. I don't even have my Bible with me yet. Like, and, but now it's like just normal. I've, I've realized I'm dumb. Like I can't figure stuff out. And so, but I think we have to have a good view of ourselves in order to understand just how powerful God is. And when we start to rely on ourselves intellectually because we believe we're so smart, it's just a demonstration of pride in our lives. When we are able to love God intellectually, we know that he is all wise. Now, the Proverbs, it starts off by saying, the pursuit of wisdom is this, seek after God. He is wisdom. He created wisdom. And so these seem separate. But in our lives, all three of these are incredibly interlocked. Uh, D.A. Carson, in one of his books, he wrote, From the viewpoint of biblical anthropology, heart, soul, and mind are not mutually exclusive, but overlapping categories, together demanding our love for God to come from our whole person, our every faculty and capacity. I love in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a verse we mentioned pretty regularly. Why? Because it says your whole being, your whole being is to be sacrificed to God. God, use, take it all. Everything I own, everything I have, everything you've created in me to be, take it all. All of my emotions, all of my feelings, my mind, my money, my resource, whatever it is, God, they are yours, and I am sacrificing them to you to be used in whatever way you see to be best to bring you glory in all things. And so this is a both individual but also overlapping command to love God with every aspect of our lives. You've probably heard me say this before. What you love, you worship. And what you worship, you become. What you love will show up in your worship. And by worship, I mean uh, the interchangeable word biblically is serve. Who am I serving? And what I serve will demonstrate what I truly love because I will worship it. Uh, what I find awe in, what I think is awesome, I will continue to go back to over and over and over again. I remember I was working at a, a drug rehabilitation center and I got a phone call um, and I was working as the intake coordinator and having people come in and, uh, and the counseling staff at a rehab center and a woman called me crying and she had said, um, my husband, because of his felony, he can't work. So I work and he stays home with the kids and this morning I couldn't get a hold of him and I called him on my break and I finally had to ask my boss and I left and he was gone. They had an infant and a two-year-old that he had left at home alone to go out and use his drug of choice. And it was just heart-wrenching as you're on the phone and she wants him to get help and doesn't know what to do because her she doesn't know how long her children were home alone for. And I think it was just a God thing and it taught me at that moment as I was on the phone, we will always know what we worship by what we sacrifice for. We will always know what we love by what we make sacrifices for. 
And in this instance, his body loved the feeling of the drugs that he was on, so much so he was willing to sacrifice his two children for it. And it sounds awful, but then I was also crushed knowing, oh, that's true in my life too. I wouldn't, you know, it's easy to say I would never sacrifice my children for that. I would never sacrifice my children. But there are always, every day, I am sacrificing something for something else. Every yes to something is a no to something else, and every no to something is a yes to something else. Because what I love, I will worship, and I will go back to repeatedly, and then whatever it is I am worshiping, I will slowly become that. So here, as we're going to be talking more and more about discipleship, especially next week, um, putting a huge focus on discipleship for this coming year. And what is discipleship for us at Hope Church? It is helping someone move one step closer in the relationship with God. So if, if Christ-likeness is the goal, if holiness is the goal, then that means I start making the decisions what I am loving in my everyday choices because that's what I will eventually worship. And if it is God who I want to grow more and more in, then I need to worship him every day because what I worship I will become. So loving God the way that he asks us to love him allows us to abide in him. And in John 15, as Jesus is walking with the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he will be arrested, he's telling them about what it means to abide. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. A branch that's not connected to the main source, the vine, cannot bear fruit. And if what I'm telling you is you need to bear fruit, then you need to stay connected to the vine. And I love that word abide, that grown in together. That branch is completely reliant upon the vine. Without the vine, there will be no fruit and there will be no life. And I love Jesus in John 10, 10, he says, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. Life that is overflowing. That's why I am here. I'm here so that I can have a relationship with you. I love you so much, but when, and when you worship me, I will give you that life. You will be abiding in him. You will be connected in him. You will have that life flowing through you, and fruit will automatically be produced. But the biggest battle we face in our love for God is our unbelievable love for ourselves. Man, do we love ourselves. We might not admit it. I'll admit it, as I just did earlier. I love myself. I think so highly of myself. Why do I get upset when somebody cuts me off in traffic? Because they're not worshiping me. They're doing what they want, not what I want. Now, let's just say you had children that disobeyed you. Tab and I are very blessed in this area. I made this joke in pre-service, and almost immediately, one started running in. And so I was like, well, I blew that. Why do I get upset when my children disobey me? How can you not obey me? Do you not know how awesome I am? I'm older, I'm wiser. How are you not obeying me? Why? I think highly of myself. And I don't understand how other people can't. And that's what all of us do when we are upset. I think it was Ed Welch who said, anger is caused when an idol is knocked off the shelf. And so that's what causes us to be upset. Our emotions demonstrate what our idols are. And we love ourselves. Remember that. We're going to talk more about that in a second. The second command, the second pun, he says, is like unto it. Love your neighbor. 
And again, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, and in Leviticus 19, it's very interesting because he's talking about the alien or the foreigner or the people that might not be like you, and they're from somewhere else, and they might look like something else. And he's basically saying, to summarize with the question, who is your neighbor? Everyone. Who is your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Another human being is your neighbor. And what does he say? He says, love your neighbor, so try to do nice things for them. Just seeing if anyone's paying attention. That's not what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because we really love ourselves. We really look out for ourselves. We just can't think anything higher of our self. Um, now, I've had people say, well, uh, this person, they actually hate themselves. So I want to just take just a quick minute here. Um, love and hate are on the same side of the coin. And the best way I can give this example is through sports. So if you're not a sports fan, I apologize in advance. There are two rosters of professional baseball teams that I know every year. The New York Yankees, that I love, and the Boston Red Sox, that I hate. But I can name you, their manager, their general manager, everybody on the roster, who's in their farm team, who's coming up, who are their top prospects. Uh, Football is very similar. All 53 people, I can name you on the New York Giants and their practice squad and who they're thinking about getting and who I hope they draft. I can also do the same thing for the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys for an entirely different reason. So it's love and hate. I know them intimately, the one I love and the one I hate. Um, in baseball, the opposite of the love-hate on the other side of the coin, and again, until Cam Stewart came into my life, the Milwaukee Brewers. I don't know anything about them. I don't care about them. Um, talking to Cam, and he's like, well, I love Milwaukee Brewers. I'm like, yeah, that's a hockey team, I'm pretty sure. Like, I don't even know if they play baseball up there. So when we say that we hate ourselves, understand it's, it's not necessarily hating ourselves, it's loving ourselves incorrectly. Um, when we say we hate something, it's usually we love it incorrectly, or it's, been, it's hurt us, or it's caused pain in our life, but I still know it intimately. I still know where that person is at all times. Um, and so when he says love it as yourself, and we say, yeah, but I hate myself, no, you don't. You're just not loving yourself as God wants you to love yourself. It's a misplaced love. Is a, is a better way to describe it. And again, we can have a much further conversation on that over coffee. So when we say to love everyone as yourselves, there is this now you are to look out for somebody else as you would look out for yourself. Um, it's a, a very tough thing. I, my friend used to use the example. It's when somebody, if I was to pick up a rock and throw it at you, your immediate instinct would be to get out of the way. But if we're loving people as Jesus loves them, it means I throw the rock at another human being and you have trained yourself to jump in the way because you wouldn't want them to go through the pain that you wouldn't want to go through. And so you will do whatever it takes to stop that. So love your neighbor as yourself. And we are very good at saying things like, well, I just love everyone. I don't see color. I don't see this. I don't see that. We're very good at making it sound, but every single one of us is born with a bias. Every single one of us is um, trained without knowing it through different ways of having a bias towards different people groups. 
I literally just told you about how I feel about Boston. Um, uh, we all have different things that throughout our life have formed a way we feel about different people, whether it's how they look, how they dress, where they live, where they're from, um, whatever it is. And most of the time we have multiple of these bias going on in our lives at the same time. But when we love everyone as ourselves, it means that all of those different compartments, all of those different rankings that we pretend that we don't do, that Jesus' love invades every single one of them as his spirit is operating in our lives. That's what it means to actually love people the way we love ourselves, that we allow the Holy Spirit to do such a work in our lives that people who for no reason we disliked, now all of a sudden we can start to feel a love for them. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. I kept telling everybody, well, I know the children are in the service, so I'm going to make it quick. So if anybody asks, I made it really quick tonight. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, the book of 1 John is, is commonly known as the book of love and, and what is love and the definition of love and how we are to love. And it'll come up in the homework in a little bit. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, he writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Several years ago, one week, I decided just to do a quick summary as a message of the book of 1 John. And I have never asked for more meetings the following week or right after the message. Uh, and that's, it's not a joke because as we walked through what it means to love others, most of the time when we're told to love someone, what pops up is the one person that we will not love. The one person who has hurt us, has harmed us, has hurt or harmed somebody that we love or care for deeply. And that's what most of those meetings were that following week. This person did this, or this person continues 
to do this? How can I love them? And I remember um, one of the meetings, Sal, you don't mind if I share this story? <laughs> one of the meetings was with Sal's uh, wife, Therese, um, who was just such an amazing human being. Um, and Therese, we sat down at, at Coastal Coffee, and she says, Rob, how do you do it? How do you love everyone? And I said, oh, I, ha I do not. I would love to sit here and tell you that I love everyone. I do not. Uh, but, and so that's what most of the meetings were, is our view of love is very earthly view of love. How do we love as Jesus loves? And sometimes that loving is having to make decisions that is best for that person that we do not like, not out of hatred, but out of love for them and their struggles or their past or whatever it is. And I would love to have continued meetings because this is a very individual thing. But I am not up here telling you that I've figured it out and how to do it. I'm saying that as part of our discipleship, it is learning to love people that we naturally or have trained ourselves to hate. Um, that we love others by allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to work in our lives, myself included, so that we can demonstrate that love to others. But I love verse 11. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Going back to the song that we sang, Oh, how he loves us. We could literally just sing that song all the time, and we can't even begin to understand how much he loves us. But he loved us, and we talked about this before Christmas. He loved us so much that even though we continually sin against him, even though he created human beings and we continually almost right away chose to sin against him, and every day we make decisions and we sin against him, he continues to love us. He continues to love us in a love that we cannot understand. And now he is saying, hey, do you understand how much I love you? Try to show love to other people. Show love to other people. And something we had said many years ago, and I was just reminded of it this week, is no human being can hurt us. No human being can sin against us in the way that we sin against God almost every day. When we think about who God is and who we are, and yet we choose to rebel against him, we choose to make decisions that are not pleasing to him, we choose ourselves over our love for him on a daily basis, and yet he still loves us. And in response, he says, I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. How difficult of a task that is as we try to love other people. No human being can sin against us in the way that we sin against God. So now what do we do from this? What's step two, now that all of us feel horrible, if you're like me? So if you look at the application, I believe it's on the back side of the notes, and I'm asking you to take these home. By the way, we will be starting up community groups. Different community groups are starting up at different times. We would love to have you in a community group, um, but this is where we look to have these discussions over these questions we ask in the application. But Again, feel free to have these with your spouse in your home, with your neighbors, with friends that you trust. But number one, um, all people are made to worship something, and we reflect what we worship. Take time to evaluate and ask the question, what do you worship? What takes priority in your time, resources, and relationships? Uh, we ask the question that you can always tell what you worship by where you spend your time, 
where you spend your money, and what are your relationships built around. So if you're not sure what you worship, just look what gets your time, what gets your money, and in your relationships with other human beings, what is the focus or what is the drawing point or what is the thing that you go back to in those conversations. Uh, Number two, what do you want to be different in your spiritual life this year? Uh, I am somebody that um, Tab and I were having conversations and Tab's been talking to several friends saying, do you make resolutions, do you not? Why did you choose to or choose not to? And uh, I'm summarizing the conversation. Basically, Tab said, well, you're just weird. You make decisions like just mid-August out of nowhere. You know what? I'm not going to do this or I'm going to start doing this. And so New Year's resolutions to me are just not a thing. Um, Number one, because you see so many people bomb on them so fast. Um, Yesterday, I met Derek and I went into the room in the gym with treadmills and there was only one treadmill left. I'm like, oh, it's the first week of January. Everybody's back at the gym. Uh, They're doing it again this year. They're going to get in shape. But, but as we are really in this new chapter, you know, we're celebrating our birthday. It's the new year. We're in a new building. And I don't know where you are in your life, but have you take time to, to figure out what do you want to be different in your spiritual life this year? And that's just the start. Next, it's, and what steps are you going to take? And then this is the big homework for you. And those of you whose community group is starting up later, you have a little bit more time. Read the book of First John and write out a mission statement for your year after reading it. Now, don't stress over it, but we want you to share this in your community group. Uh, Share this with somebody. What are you, if you read through the book of 1 John, what stands out to you in how you should live your life differently? And then share that with your community group, and as you go through this next year, you can continue to come back. Hey, how are you doing this this year? Um, When we first started meeting in here, um, there was actually a aisle that went down this middle two chairs weren't there and so we would come in and we would rope off the sides trying to get you know all 20 of us in one section if that Um, and then one week it hit me that one of the greatest ways to demonstrate love that we're commanded to do is to tell other people about Jesus and so we had them take down the ropes on the sides And the idea was every empty chair represents somebody that you could be inviting to church. Uh, Every empty chair, and especially now, we've been gone for two years, and I'm pretty sure they built 19 apartment complexes on Old Trolley Road, and there's 100 more housing developments within a mile of here. The population has gone up. How do we love our community? If we love God, how does that play out in our life and how we love others? And if the people of our community are lost and they don't know God, are we doing the most loving thing by telling them about God? Again, I don't think Hope Church is special and we're the only church and we have it figured out. So talk to people and invite them to a church. Invite them to, there's several churches that I can recommend in this area to send people to. Are you pointing people to God? Are you loving them by inviting them to know God? I love in this passage because he so clearly defines it. And if you're here this evening and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have never confessed out to him your need for him, your need for a savior, that you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need him and that you believe that he lived, died, and rose again for you, our prayer is that tonight that you make that decision. It is a free gift of God 
That's why he came. That's how we know he loved us because of what he did for you when he took your punishment, when he took your sins upon himself and took him to the grave, rose again, defeating sin and death. He did that for you. He did that because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. This evening, as much as we're going to celebrate his seventh birthday, it doesn't even compare to the celebration that we can have when somebody puts their faith in Jesus. The celebration that happens in heaven as the angels rejoice when somebody takes that step. So our prayer is that tonight that you would make that decision to follow him. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you have given us example after example in your Bible about how much you love us. Lord, I thank you that because of your love for us, you invite us to know you. Lord, I pray that, one, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you, that today would be the day of salvation, that today they would give their life to you. But two, I also pray for those who, those of us that do know you and have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to use your spirit to convict us, that you continue to point out to us how we can love you more, but also how we can love others more as well. Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for you and all that you continue to do in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.